Hi, friends. Many of you know that we started a series in the book of Genesis.、Um, however, we had some technical difficulties in the recording during the service, and so what I'm going to attempt to do is to duplicate that message for you in this recording in my garage. So I hope you enjoy this message on Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty; darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, "Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water." So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, "Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear." And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters He called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, "Let the land produce vegetation." Seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, "Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times." And days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights: the greater light to govern the day, and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, "Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky." So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, "Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth." And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, "Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds: the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind." And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, "Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky." Over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, "Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground." Then God said, "I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth." And every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every 
green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, I'd like to point out a couple things. At the very beginning of this story, we start with an opening verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, when you read that in the English, it's ten words. But if you read it in the original Hebrew, Breshit bara Elohim, et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. It's seven words. Now, there's a reason why that's significant. Seven is a very significant number throughout the scriptures. There are seven days of creation. Later on in Genesis, there's seven times over in the story of Cain for vengeance and for forgiveness. There are seven branches of the menorah. There's seven year cycle for the Jubilee. And these sevens just pop up all over the place. The question is, why does this number seven have such significance at the beginning? And would that tell us something about why the opening verse of this book has seven in it? Well, there's a couple theories. Some historians and archaeologists have noticed that there were seven hills of Rome, and that's part of the mythology. The ancient Greeks actually divided life into multiples of seven. So you were a child from ages zero to seven. You were a boy from ages seven to 14. You were a young man from the ages of 14 to 21. And then post-21, you were a full adult. And that's, by the way, why we have the number 21 in our modern day marking as a very significant marker because it comes from, and it's an inheritance from this series of sevens. And some people believe that the reason why those sevens are so enthroned in our culture is because the ancient Greeks understood that there were seven planets. Now, that's not including the debate that we have today about Pluto. Um, People are very contentious about that. But it is to say that the ancient Greeks, when they looked up into the sky and they identified the planets that were moving around in the sky, they identified seven. And so what we can draw from that, what a lot of people suggest, is that this number seven is a symbol to indicate completeness or wholeness or perfection, the way that things are supposed to be. So like the seven hills of Rome, Rome becomes this great civilization founded on seven hills, which means that the civilization that Rome has built is the full and complete civilization that this world has never seen, or at least that's the mythology, that's the story that's told. The seven spans, uh, multiples of their spans of life. And the Greek idea is that you have completed childhood by the age of seven. You have completed boyhood by the age of 14. You have completed young manhood by the age of 21. And then post that you have become an adult. The number seven for the number of planets that are in the sky is the completeness or the wholeness of all of the heavenlies. So this idea of wholeness and completeness comes into play with this number seven. Now, why is that significant? Because if the opening verse of the Bible, of this story that we just read, is seven words, then that may be an indicator, it may be a symbol, it may be telling us something, that what is coming, what is happening, the the story that is being written in this literature is a story of wholeness and completion, what it's supposed to be, all of it together. 
And it's multiplied again when you go to verse 2. Now, verse 2 says, And the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Again, in Hebrew, you want to take a guess as to how many words that is in the Hebrew? 14. So the first verse is seven. The second verse has 14. The entire opening paragraph of Genesis chapter one has 21 words, three times seven. So right there, that symbolism is something that we should pay attention to. Now, I want to make a note that we're not worshiping the number seven. We're not venerating the number seven. We are recognizing that the number seven has significance in the ancient culture. Just like the number 13 would have significance today. I mean, today we don't have the 13th floor in many buildings, and we try to avoid Friday the 13th. We don't necessarily find a lot of superstition in it, but we do recognize that the number has symbolic power in our culture. So this opening paragraph of this epic Genesis story that we are studying and beginning to dive into begins with a three fold completion and perfection structure in its literature. And that's something significant. It's something we should pay attention to. It's something that should bring some meaning to the reading that we have. Now, verse two has this phrase in there. And the earth was formless and empty. Now in the Hebrew, that phrase is tohu vavohu, which is a lot of fun to say. Tohu vavohu. Now, there's a lot of different translations of tohu vavohu, formless and empty, wild and waste. Uh, Umberto Casuto, in his commentary on Genesis, talks about tohu vavohu as the whole material was an undifferentiated, unorganized, confused, and lifeless agglomeration. That kind of puts a lot of comfort into the phraseology. And I looked up agglomeration, and that just simply means a jumbled mass, a heap of disparate elements. Let me, let me say that again. The whole material was an undifferentiated, unorganized, confused, and lifeless agglomeration, a jumbled mass, a heap of disparate elements. I like to think of Tohu Vavohu as Walmart on a Saturday afternoon. I like to think of Tohu Vavohu as under six soccer. I like to think of Tohu Vavohu as the DMV. If you are a Windows person, we're in Silicon Valley here, think of Tohu Vavohu as the blue screen of death. And if you're a Mac person, think of Tohu Vavohu as a PC, as Windows. So the beginning of the story, the earth was Tohu Vavohu, formless and empty. And then something amazing happens. God speaks. And he speaks into this undifferentiated, unorganized, confused, and lifeless agglomeration. And the entire world begins to take shape. Now, there's a lot of things that we could say about this. The one thing I want to point out is the tohu, vavohu, the formlessness and the emptiness, form a framework for the Genesis story. So on day one, God creates light. He's forming Like day two, he creates an expanse with waters below and waters above. And day three, he creates dry ground. So he's forming on day one, day two, day three. Now, we used to think, uh, or we're conditioned to think in linearity. So day four comes after day three. But if you take a look at this passage carefully, day four, when God creates the luminaries, the sun, moon, the stars, it pairs perfectly 
with day one. So day one, God was forming the light. On day four, God was filling the light. Formless and empty becomes formed and filled. So day one goes with day four. Day two, the expanse in the sky goes with day five, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. Day three goes with day six, because on day six is when God creates the animals and he creates this magnificent creature called Adam, Adam, humankind. And so right at this very beginning, we see this beautiful pairing. Day one goes with day four. Day two goes with day five. Day three goes with day six. And this beautiful creation has its place. Each element that God fashions and forms by divine fiat, by speaking, has its beautiful place. And at the very end of each day, he says, and there was evening and there was morning. And there was evening and there was morning. And there was evening and there was morning. And to this day, the Jewish people mark the days by the sunset. So, in fact, if this is today, is Monday night in our calendar, it is actually Tuesday night, even though the sun has set on a Monday. And so there's this beautiful picture that we can see that in the very beginning of this story that God has created and the way he's created his, his, the world, the day begins with rest. And there was evening and there was morning, day one. If you go to Israel to this day, they mark the Sabbath by the sundown and the entire city shuts down. It's a beautiful image and picture of the beginning of the day that begins with rest. If we move on, we also notice a couple other things. At the very end of particular parts, God sees, looks upon this creation And he declares, it is really good. He sees the light. He sees the dry land and the seas, the seed-bearing plants, the lights to rule, the seed creatures, the winged animals, the beasts of the field. And then in verse 31, he says, look at all that he has made. And it was very, very good. Now, the question I want to ask, those are just a few things that I'd like to point out. There's much more in that literature. But the question that I want to ask is this, what kind of literature is this and why is this writing so important? Now, in our culture and in a lot of discussions and a lot of things that you might read on the news or in blogs and stuff, people read Genesis very literally in the sense that we can determine exactly what happens in material definitions by reading this Genesis story. In other words, we kind of use it and as a science book. Well, I had a rabbi in Oakland, Rabbi Dardick, once say to me, you know, you can use Genesis as a science book, but that's kind of like using a 747 as a paperweight. You can hold down a piece of paper with a 747, but is that what the 747 was created to do? And it may be a bit ridiculous to use the 747 as a paperweight. And so what I'm going to suggest to us very lovingly is that we recognize that this opening book, this Genesis story is not science, but it's a story. And we, we ought not to read it literally, but we should read it as literature. 
Let me say that again. This is not science, but it's a story. And this isn't about reading it literally or with literalism in mind, but we should read it as literature. Now, one of the ways to ask the question, what kind of literature is this, is to compare it to another story. Well, in 1849, in Nineveh, archaeologists discovered seven clay tablets that they have called now Enuma Elish, Enuma Elish, which is Babylonian for when on high. Now, what is Enuma Elish? Enuma Elish is seven tablets that describes the exaltation of a god by the name of Marduk. And it includes in that exaltation of Marduk descriptions of how this world came to be. And so there's things in there that seem like they would be somewhat similar to the Genesis story. Let me read for you just a couple excerpts out of Enuma Elish and then make some commentary as to why this piece of literature is so important for us in understanding Genesis. Tiamat and Marduk, Tiamat is the other god, sage of the gods, drew close for battle. They locked in single combat, joining for the fray. The Lord, that is Marduk, spread out his net and encircled Tiamat. The ill wind he had held behind him, he released in her face. Tiamat opened her mouth to swallow. He thrust in the ill wind so she could not close her lips. The raging winds bloated her belly. Her insides were stopped up. She gaped her mouth wide. He shot off the arrow. It broke open her belly. It cut to her innards. It pierced the heart. He subdued her and snuffed out her life. He flung down her carcass. He took his stand upon it. He made firm his hold over the captured gods, then turned back to Tiamat, whom he had captured. The Lord trampled upon the frame of Tiamat. With his merciless mace, he crushed her skull. He cut open the arteries of her blood. He let the north wind bear it away as glad tidings. Then the Lord inspected her carcass that he might divide the monstrous lump and fashion artful things. He split her in two like a fish for drying. Half of her he set up and made as a cover the heavens. He stretched out the hide and assigned watchmen and ordered them not to let her waters escape. Now that's just a segment. Those are just little excerpts of this story from Enuma Elish. And what we have to understand is that at the very end there, when Tiamat is slaughtered by Marduk, she is split in two and parts of her body begin to fashion and form this world, this creation. Half of her is set as a cover for heaven and the other half is set there to make sure that the waters below on the earth do not escape. Now, it sounds in some ways somewhat similar to the Genesis story when God sets the expanse in the sky and there's waters above and there's waters below. But what we need to notice about this story is this. The Enuma Elish story, even though it has creation narratives, really is about one thing, the exaltation of the warrior god Marduk. And when we get to the parts where this world is created, you start to recognize this violence. The creation that is through this story is through battle, through war, through bloodshed. And the world that we now live in, the world that we see and experience, the world that was created through this story 
is really not out of love or intentionality. It's out of war. It's the spoils of war in some ways. Marduk beats his enemy Tiamat and then fashions the world kind of as the victory over this other god. And throughout this story, there's bloodshed, there's violence, and ultimately it's about power. It's about how this god is the greatest god of all the gods. And as a result, by the way, if this is the story that you're told, this is possibly how you might understand how this world works, how it lives, how it operates. Now, some time later, again, depending upon your chronology, there's this Genesis story that comes along on the scene. And as we read this Genesis story, we discover that it is describing this beautiful creation in a completely, a completely opposite way of what this Enuma Elish story is about. First of all, this God in the Genesis story creates through words, out of his desire, out of his benevolence, out of his goodness. He speaks into chaos and he pulls out of that something wonderful and wonder, wonderfully good. It's not out of spoils of war. It's out of his words. So God is good and he creates this world through speaking. And because of that, remember the pairing of day one and day four? Remember that? Well, this world that we see and we experience has purpose. Everything has its place. And from that, we draw meaning. And then again, all throughout the story of Genesis, God calls this creation good. And then he does something which is completely absent from the Enuma Elish story. He blessed. He blesses the animals to be fruitful and multiply. And he blesses the humans, the Adam, the humankind, to be fruitful and multiply. This Genesis story has a rhythm. And there was evening and morning day one. And there was evening and morning day two. And there was evening and morning day three. And there was evening and morning day four. It has a rhythm which indicates to us that this beautiful rhythm of life is set within the created order. That there is a time to rest. There is a time to work. In verse 27, he creates humans in his image and in his likeness. And he blesses them. And in verse 31, God looks at this creation and says, it is very, very good. Now, when you put those two stories together, you realize that there is something radically different going on in this Genesis story in comparison to the previous creation stories, and you start to discover that this story, this Genesis story that begins the entire scriptures is a story that is extremely well orchestrated with purpose, with design, with meaning, with intentionality. And if you will allow me to have a metaphor here as well orchestrated, one of the ways in which people have thought about this creation story is really as music. That God, as a great conductor, is pulling in the different parts of this creative order, piecing them together in a beautiful symphony 
of this creation. And we see this creation, this created order, as something wonderful and good and beautiful and awe-inspiring. And so let's read again. This time, understanding with this story being extremely well orchestrated. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. 
and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it. I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now again, let us just stop and pause for a moment and recognize this is a very well-orchestrated Story. Every piece has its part. It's got purpose. It's got meaning. It's got intentionality. It has an understanding that we humans are created in the image of God. The day begins with rest. There's a rhythm and a pattern to this created order. And ultimately, it is very good. Very good. So in answering the question, what kind of literature is this? This is an amazing piece of literature. Not only do we believe this is God's very word, but it is a far, far better story than other stories that talk about this creation. This is a very, very good, very well-orchestrated story. Now, one last question I want to wrestle with. Why is this story so important? Well, the reason is because Every single one of us. And the reason why I think the Bible begins with this story is because we all choose a story out of which we live. Now, what is a story? A story is not just events or characters, but a story creates a frame of reference. It's a way in which we think about the world. It's a guide for how we act in it. So, so in other words, a story is not just a dra- dramatic piece of entertainment. It's not just a story is not just a piece of gossip or, and it's definitely not a science book, but a story is a narrative that provides the conductor for our lives. And like the conductor conducting the orchestra for the music and, and the direction and the rhythm and the pattern of that music that goes forward. So a story conducts our lives for the patterns of where we go. Now, what are some of the stories that we live by? Well, let me give you some examples. How many of you live out of a story of failure? How how many of you said that I was a failure at this and, and you say to yourself, I will never be good at anything. Well, that is a story that you tell yourself. Maybe that was a story that somebody told you. Maybe it was a parent who said that to you. Maybe it was a kid on the playground. Maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was actually a good friend of yours that said something to you and it just stuck with you and said, I am no good at this. Well, that's not truth. That's a story that you live by. What about stereotypes? Stereotypes are actually stories that we tell ourselves about other people. I've been following the news, and I'm sure you have as well, regarding the Zimmerman case uh, with the tragic death of Trayvon Martin. Now, without getting into all of the the heated discussion uh, that surrounds that, I keep wondering and asking the question, what kind of story do you tell yourself about that other person? Because if, if you tell yourself a story that that other person is up to no good, if they are a bad person or that they always get away with things. If, you, if that's the story that you tell yourself, 
then that guides and directs how you live and act in this world. That's a story that informs that informs you that provides that frame of reference. What about disease? If you contract cancer, are you a cancer patient and this is your identity? This is now how you live? That's a story that you tell yourself. What about achievement? Uh, climbing the corporate ladder or trying to make whatever the next greatest thing is or trying to be the very best in your particular field or in your particular expertise and your identity comes out of that achievement. Well, if, if you say that my identity is going to come from that, that's a story that you tell yourself. And, and then in, in theology, we often start the story in Genesis chapter 3 because in a lot of our theologies, we start with the phrase, you are a sinner. And we tell the Genesis 3 story. So why do we start in chapter 3? Well, that is the story that we have chosen to tell. On the contrary, this Genesis story tells us something different if we start in Genesis 1. What does it tell us? It tells us that this world is good. It tells us that this world has been created with intentionality. It tells us that this world has meaning and purpose. And it tells us that your identity, the very core and essence of who you are, is grounded in being in the image of God. And not just a God, a good God who loves and who is benevolent. And if we talk about theology, we don't start with the story that we are all sinners. That's not the starting place. That's Genesis 3. Genesis 1 starts with... You're created in God's image, in his likeness, and you are blessed and very good. That's the story we start with. See, if you choose this story, if you understand this story, it changes everything. So, for example, God has breathed his life into us in this Genesis 1 story. And so, if that's the story that you live by, then we understand that if God has breathed life into us, then everything that we are, everything that we live, we are living out of the very life and breath of God. Which means that we have purpose, we, may, we have meaning, we have direction. And that, my friends, is a far greater story than the failure and the stereotypes and the false identities, those stories that we often live by. The reason why this Genesis story is so important is because it provides for us a far better story. As we get into the rest of this Genesis series, which we're so excited about, we're going to talk about identity, about how God created man and he created woman. And the way in which you understand yourself is by understanding the other. And that's a story that is told in the very beginning parts of this Bible. And that is the story that helps us to understand identity. We're going to tell the story about how words are not merely descriptors. They are actually powerful and creative. Why? Because the story is God creates when he speaks. So if that's the story, then we understand, oh, wait a second. Words create worlds. We're going to talk about ethics. 
and how we are supposed to treat one another. See, if the story is that there are good people and there are bad people, then that changes how you behave in justice systems and and in your behavior with other people. But if you understand that every single person on the face of the planet has been created in the image and likeness of God, which is our story, then that changes and informs how you behave ethically and morally with the other. We're going to talk about truth. Uh, The beginning of the story starts off with God creating, quote, the heavens and the earth, which is a wonderful way of saying everything. And so if there's truth out there, if there's something to discover, if that's the story that you're telling yourself that God created it all, then that changes how you think about truth completely and altogether. And if you tell the story that rest, beginning with evening, is woven into the fabric of this creation, if, you, if that's the story that you tell yourself, or if that's the story of this Genesis, then that's the story that you will live by. You will recognize that rest peace, margins are deeply spiritual and we all need that rest. Did Jesus do this? Absolutely. Read John chapter 1. The story of Jesus doesn't begin with we are all sinners. Over and over again, the gospel writers refer back to this Genesis 1 story and grounds the entire life and ministry of Jesus in the Genesis story and the good story. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And there are other passages like that that talk about this Jesus story as being grounded in a Genesis 1 story. And what informs Jesus in the rest of His ministry is the narrative and the story that is told the very beginning. So my friends, my question is simply this in this message. What story are you living in? By what story do you live? Do you live with the detrimental, weak, lesser stories of failure, stereotypes, disease, identity, and achievement? Do you live out of that story? Do you make your decisions out of that? Do you make your decisions out of fear? Do you live your life out of uh, achievement? Or do you live your life out of a much better story? One that is good, one that has intentionality, one that has meaning, one that has identity in a good and gracious God. And you bear that image and likeness of that good and gracious God. What story are you living? And it's so easy in our world to be seduced by these competing stories. And so the reason why this Genesis story is so important is because every single one of us, you and me, we need a better story to live. We need a far better story than the one we've been living. And Genesis is that story. 